1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia, a special series on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu.
3: And I'm Alex Diamond.
2: And we are the hosts of this special series.
3: Ethnographic Marginalia brings together a set of conversations around ethnographic practice. In each episode, we will converse with an ethnographer about their research design, process, and fieldwork experiences.
2: These conversations center the dilemmas, tribulations, mistakes, and pleasures that go into doing ethnographic research. We hope to use the conversations that transpire on this podcast as an opportunity to build community amongst ethnographers in various disciplines.
3: Towards this end, we also have a website where we publish field notes, ethnographic essays, photo essays, and methodological reflections.
2: Please visit our website, Ethnographic Marginalia at www.ethnomarginalia.com to know more about how you can publish with us. We look forward to hearing from you.
3: Before we proceed with this episode, we'd also like to thank our sponsors, the Ethnography Incubator at the University of Chicago and the Lozano-Long Institute of Latin American Studies at the University of Texas at Austin.
2: And so we begin.
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Ethnographic Marginalia. Today we are thrilled to have Dr. Mari Carmen Hernández as our guest. Mari Carmen is Assistant Professor of Sociology at the University of New Mexico. Her research, which has been published in Sociological Perspectives and Social Problems, among others, deals with environmental justice and environmental racism in Latin America and U.S. immigrant and minority communities, examining how everyday experience and understandings of contamination contribute to the socio-political production of environmental inequality. Mari Carmen, welcome to the show. Uh, we are thrilled to have you here talking with us today.
0: Thank you very much for the invitation, Alex. I'm really happy to be here with you guys.
2: Yeah, um, and, you know, so to start us off, we were hoping that you could tell us a little bit about how you became a sociologist and what drew you to ethnography in particular.
0: Uh, sure. So it was. It's a little bit of a roundabout way that I became a sociologist. Uh, I my bachelor's is in anthropology, which really answers the methodological question. I think that I was very excited about ethnography when I was doing my undergraduate degree. Because of mentorship issues and programs available and things like that, I did a master's that was more geared toward geography, human geography. And as I was applying to graduate programs, um, I pretty much had an idea that I wanted to do ethnography, whether that was within the discipline of anthropology, geography, or sociology, all possibilities. Um, I was definitely much more inclined toward geography, but because I, it was really, um, shout out to my mentor, I suppose. So I I met Javier, and I just really liked the idea of working with him, and he was a sociologist. So that's pretty much why I ended up in a sociology program, because I was really betting on working with him on issues of environmental injustice in Latin America. Yeah, uh, an issue that was not as explored within sociology. So that Mm -hmm. was pretty much how I made it there. And ethnography, that, that was the other reason. So uh, there was the ethnography lab that Javier Aulero was kind of running at the University of Texas. And so I thought that there was this opportunity to work with uh, him on these environmental issues in Latin America, but then also to be part of the ethnography lab, which would really gear me to doing work within that methodology.
1: mm mm-hmm. So yeah, that's speaking... great, and I'm
2: sure Alex will also um, identify with this uh, pull towards Javier and the ethnography lab for sure.
3: Right. That's that's actually how how we met, and probably why um, why we're having this conversation right now. Um, so, yeah. Marika, Marika, when speaking of uh, that research that that you mentioned, um, environmental issues uh, in Latin America. Uh, you did dissertation research in Esmeraldas, Ecuador, right? Um, how, how did you end up there?
0: Yeah, I, I did. So all of my dissertation research and my current project is based in the coastal city of Esmeraldas, Ecuador. And really, I mean, it goes back to the same thing. So when I was starting my graduate program, uh, Javier, my advisor at the time, had a project where uh, he was, l- along with a group of researchers, uh, graduate students, at different contaminated places in areas of Latin America. So, kind of comparing across countries, and it included Peru, uh, Argentina, and Ecuador, and so. He needed a graduate assistant to do work in Ecuador. I had never been there. Most of my research uh, at the time had been in the U.S.-Mexico border area, and um, And Houston, Texas. And so I wanted to go to Latin America and do research there. My main idea was to go directly to Mexico, which is where I'm from. But this was just, you know, a great opportunity to do, to be part of a project that was already funded and already going. So anyway, I go and do my graduate assistant work, which was only for two months in the summer of 2015. And I answer the questions that I set out to answer basically which were much more geared toward that project but I came out of those two months with much many more questions basically that went way beyond the yeah the scope of that particular project so I came back and I talked to him and said you know I want to continue working in this place Esmeraldas it's fascinating to me um the racial dynamics and I don't know the political um relationship that the city of Esmeraldas has with the country of Ecuador and so all of these things were very interesting to me and that's pretty much how I wrapped up my work as a research assistant and kind of set out on my own project from there using that as kind of preliminary field work to build off of.
3: Mm-hmm. And what, what were the environmental justice issues that, that you found in Esmeraldas?
0: Right. So what I found is that Esmeraldas is a city in the north, like I said, it's a coastal city in the north of Ecuador, um, border with Colombia. It hosts the largest uh, refinery and electric plant in the country, the largest petrochemical complex. uh, And it is also the Black province in the country of Ecuador. That's how they term it. it has the largest afro-ecuadorian population in the country so it's a majority black uh province a majority black city specifically and um very remote within the highly centralized political um environment of ecuador so they there are these issues of racism in general and abandonment from the state which i'm sure alex you're familiar with um Working in Colombia. Uh, so, something similar to that, but then also the fact that they are not only sort of abandoned by the state and not supported because of racism, but they are also hosting the largest petrochemical complex in a country that depends on its petrodollars. So, knowing that the complex that really produces a large part of the GDP of the country is in this area that does not really uh, benefit from that. At all, it was very interesting to me. And more on a micro level, it was kind of the haphazard way in which the city had grown, which we also know is a characteristic of Latin American cities with a lot of informality, informal settlements, um, and very poor, marginalized communities. And so the complex itself ended up being uh, surrounded by a variety of informal settlements of people who were just kind of setting up their homes there and living within meters of smokestacks and other industrial structures such as that. And it was a highly polluted environment. Um, Data is not as available, you know, like emissions monitoring data, but even just experiential data of people talking about how they live with toxicity. So all of this kind of created a, a situation that was very interesting uh, for research and of course I mean very sad the injustice that you just see was so blatant there um the racial dynamic the socioeconomic dynamic and the political abandonment
2: yeah this all sounds really um, really distressing to I think work with but also very sociologically um, important to, to, you know, explain and explicate. So I'm really glad that you did the work that you did and the work that you're doing. But uh, to get into the ethnographic uh, nitty gritties, I was curious to know how did you make contacts and get integrated with, uh, you know, the community, so to speak?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a very just kind of get in there type of experience. because <laughs> I had never done work. So I had done ethnographic work in Ciudad Juarez and El Paso, the area where I'm from, for example. So, of course, I know people there. I grew up in the area. This was not only a city, a province, but like a country that I had never been to and that I didn't know anyone from there. It was I, I did have some contacts to begin with, but they were all researchers and faculty members in like the National University in Quito, in the capital. And some of these people had projects. Uh, happening in Esmeraldas. And so they put me in contact with a few people. Uh I really just had phone numbers. So I arrived in Quito and I met with these professors and researchers and they kind of guided me in a way, but they also said, you know, we're not from that place. That's kind of a remote area in the country. So I just, um yeah, I took a bus ride and went to Esmeraldas and lived in a hotel for a week while I found a place to live. I found an apartment uh, with a family first. And from there, it was just door knocking, pretty much. It was going to the, I mean, the main thing, the, the way that I found most of my informants, I suppose, at the beginning, and later made friends and all of these things kind of found my way into the city was Uh, that I just had the idea of going into the local municipal office and they had a list of what they call Dirigentes Barriales, which are the real like grassroots organizers at the neighborhood level of each neighborhood. So Esmeraldas has a tradition of being highly organized. Every single neighborhood has a, an elected president and a vice president and all of these things, a directiva that they call it. So anyway, this office um, had a list of the directivas and their phone numbers. So I just called up one by one. Of course, some wouldn't talk to me. Others did. I ended up visiting over... 40 neighborhoods, I would say, in the area, in the southern part of the city, which is the area where the complex is located, and just meeting mm-hmm. people um, every day, meeting different people, introducing myself and asking them just very general questions. And so my first, th- that summer of preliminary research, my idea was to map out the city and understand pretty much who's who and what neighborhoods are where and what are which are the most exposed, which are the poorest, which are the ones that have the most problems, so I really just did that every day, visiting different neighborhoods and meeting different people. And, you know, as it happens when you're doing ethnography, some people were much more open to talking to me, others were less. And that kind of guided um, the networks of contacts that I made. And ultimately, I chose the one neighborhood that I focused on, and that was based on proximity because it was the closest to the complex, the most contaminated, and also the poorest. And mm-hmm. I met their president and she was pretty open to talking to me and showing me around. So yeah, that's pretty much how I met people.
2: That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. It will be of great use to people who are starting research or, you know, wondering what fieldwork really looks like.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Alex. I was just going to say
3: it strikes me as really similar to being uh, here in in rural Colombia. And uh, it's sort of the same thing, that there's the community organizations with our, which are Juntas de Acción Comunal, community action boards, and they all have a president and a vice president, and these are people who are community leaders, and i and usually very interested in talking about the community. Um, so that was, I think, a really smart strategy that you had. Uh, I didn't do that. Um, maybe I should have asked you for advice.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that... Um neighborhoods and places like these that are poorer, more informal, less access to resources, to formal employment, tend to be really highly organized. That was my experience in Ecuador. And I've also seen it in Mexico. And it's pretty much because people kind of keep each other safe, right, and help each other in time of need because of a lack Mm -hmm. of resources. And so these key actors actresses i should say because i mean i think we're going to talk about gender later but so many of these people are women um local organizers and so they're really just key to getting to know the place as alex probably also has experience much more acutely than i probably um some of these areas are not very safe especially for me i mean a, a woman by myself and so mm-hmm. just meeting key uh women leaders in the community was really really important to also keeping fieldwork safe
2: yeah I mean since we've started talking about this I might as well ask you the question I was going to ask you a bit later but I would love to hear you uh talk about how gender shaped your field work and what were the limitations but also possibilities as you just outlined briefly uh, that being in a v- woman in a, in the field offered to you
0: yeah um the field, I probably anywhere, but in these places in Latin America is an incredibly gendered space, um, mm-hmm. very, very gendered. And so the way I have thought about it really is more like there were some limitations, and there were other, you know, like benefits of the fact that I was a woman in the field. And I, I think it comes down to the research that you ultimately do. And for example, so I have a friend in Esmeraldas, an anthropologist who did his dissertation fieldwork there a few years before I arrived, but we have become good friends and collaborators. And he did most of his work with um, oil workers. So Mm -hmm. refinery workers and engineers within the complex, an extremely male space, Uh, I would say Pretty chauvinist, honestly. I mean, it's just not a space that is very easily um, navigated by a woman unless you're willing to put up with a lot of things that I wouldn't like to have to put up with. So anyway, I think that his study ended up being very much about toxicity in oil workers and mine. Also, because of my interest, I was really much more interested in at the neighborhood level and the way people outside of that marginalized communities were experiencing it. But Mm -hmm. it was good to find out as soon as I arrived that a lot of these women, a lot of these organizers at the neighborhood level are women. And so the Esmeraldeña woman in general, right? So the idea of women in Esmeraldas is very empowered. They are very, you know, they fight for their rights. They're political activists. They have a history of being political activists. And so kind of following the trail of women was very uh, comforting for me because I knew it was going to be safer. But also it was the data that I wanted at the grassroots organizing level. And it was these women who were doing it. So it allowed me the space to enter women's spaces, not formal women's spaces, like, you know, it's not um, that structured where there's spaces that only women can enter. But there are definitely spaces that are much more women-oriented and, like, women-centered. And so I, for example, lived in... um, Yeah, since the second time I went there, I made one very good friend who was the president of one of the neighborhoods that where I was studying. And she is a single mother with two daughters who were exactly my age. Uh, So it was a household of three women and I just fit right in. It was perfect. You know, I just kind of (laughs) arrived and we became kind of this like a small group of working Uh, women because I was helping them with their organizing and they were all very involved in their community. And a lot of this was through the, for example, their group was the Madres del Barrio. So the mothers of the neighborhood, and it's very gendered in that way. So that was what gave me access into like uh, children's health issues, for example, lots of respiratory health issues because of the toxicity. So women are the ones who go to the hospital and take their kids and they know what their issues are. And they talk to the doctors a lot more than men in that area, right? Because of the division of labor, the very traditional kind of thing that they do. So yeah, that, that was pretty much how, what what the limitations were, I suppose, if I would have wanted to do a different study, I would have had a lot more trouble with access, I think. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or, yeah, like I said, or having to deal with things that I really didn't want to.
2: Yeah, that's really beautifully summed up. And um, it's very, very interesting. I can't wait to read more of what comes out of these sorts of reflections on gender and fieldwork. Thank you.
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
3: Uh, Mari Carmen, I wanted to ask, how do you understand uh, that that female leadership, which which sounds wonderful? Um, you know, you've alluded to my work that I that I also do research uh, in marginalized communities in, in Latin America, um, and I would say that while there are are a few very strong female leaders, my experience overall has been that. Um, in community meetings, for example, you know, I've even taken counts that now, tw- this not an exaggeration, now 12 men have spoken in a row and they're just sort of shouting each other down. Um, and that, notwithstanding some, some very strong female leaders, the overall tenor of leadership and political leadership is that it's a, a masculine space in, in ways that are not at all, um, positive, um. I attributed that to just sort of general sexism in the, in the society, machista culture. Um, so I'm curious, do you think those communities are somehow not as machista or, or what has enabled uh, women's leadership in, in what sounds like these really positive ways?
0: Oh, well, that's a really, I mean, it's kind of a difficult to answer question. I would never want to say that there is less machismo in my field side of Esmeraldas. Um, So for example, domestic violence in the barrio is a really, really, really prevalent issue. Mm -hmm. And so I wouldn't say that it's like, yeah, that it's less machista, but I would definitely say that women are very empowered. They are very, very empowered. They fight for what they want. Um, another important note is that this particular neighborhood or neighborhoods too in which I worked, because they're very poor and marginalized, they also tend to have a high rate of uh, single mothers or female-headed households in general. And so I think power in numbers, I mean, there are just so many women in there who are the head of household. That's one thing. And then the other thing too is that this is, I'm really just, thinking about this, I'm not quite sure if this is the case, but for example, some of the things that these people are organizing around are not as, I don't know, I don't know if I should say dire or violent, violent for sure than what people that you work with are dealing with, Alex. And so what I mean by that is that they're organizing, for example, currently they're organizing to try to obtain their land titles. So they've been living on land that they have a permission to live on. The local government gave them permission, but they don't own it. And so in order to be able to pass it on to their children, they worry that they won't be able to do that unless they hold their legal ownership of the land. Right. And so anyway, a lot of the of the meetings that they had in 2018 and 19, when I was last there, was about legalizing their ownership of the land, which in a way, a lot more women showed up to these meetings than men. And the division of labor in the household is sometimes in these areas like the man goes out and he works very physically for hours all day, whether fishing or construction or that sort of thing. And the woman is much more in charge of the administration of the household. And so I think a lot of these meetings are thought of as being within the realm of the administration of the household, whether that is to get better services or to get transportation or to get... Um, you know, better electricity uh, service to the area. So all of this is thought to be kind of women's work. Also, for example, um, they do, they have had a few meetings with the refinery about the toxicity that they are exposed to. So again, thought of as women's issues because it impacts health and especially children's health. And so I think that that may be one of the reasons. Although, like I said, I'm I'm not quite sure if this is the, the main reason. That's
3: That's fascinating and it's, a little counter to what I would expect, but no, that's a, that's a really interesting uh, insight of how, I guess, politics gets conceived of in, in feminine terms. Um, wanted to ask if there was any incident that you could identify during like early field work um, that you wanted to tell us about that was really transformative in terms of the, the future direction of your research um, and your dissertation. Uh, like a a kind of aha moment.
0: Right. So I think I, this aha moment, I think I I realized it was that um, in hindsight only, not when it was happening. And I think it actually, I had a few moments when this sort of thing happened to me. So I think that it was, when I write about, The context of the area that I'm studying. So of course, you say it's informal, it's marginalized, it's racialized, it's poor. Um, Age media, uh, average age of first pregnancy for young girls who are born in the neighborhood is between 13 and 14. So anyway, lots of issues, right? Lots of social issues that make the place sound pretty sad or scary or something like that, like uh, undesirable. Also, the neighborhood has a really bad rep in the city. So whenever people joke about like, oh, if you want to get robbed, you go to this place, they mentioned this particular neighborhood, right? So anyway, everything is set up for it to sound like a terrible place. And so when I f- went the first time, like I told you, I came back and I said, I want to go back there. And I think Javier kind of you know he he chuckled a little and he's like why would you want to do that um, given that it just sounds like not such a wonderful place and because i was considering doing um my research in texas in north texas where there are also a lot of environmental uh, injustices around fracking and so i was comparing the two places and i was thinking where do i want to go and i just thought you know like i told him the minute i left i wanted to be back there it was just a really vibrant wonderful happy joyous place that doesn't really do justice um w- what i write doesn't do justice to the way life is lived there and so that that happened and then i think later we're going to talk about why i had to leave um the field early i had to i was evacuated and so when those two things happened i realized that i really wanted to go back there as opposed to be in my very comfortable apartment in Quito or in my own house in Austin, for example. I just knew that there was a pool to this neighborhood. And in retrospect, thinking about it, that was pretty much what ended up being the argument. The main one of the main arguments of my dissertation was that uh people really created a community there. You know, they arrived to a place that had pretty much nothing and that was a very very uninhabitable and just a hard place to live in and they worked really hard together and created a community that is now one really big family where there are just you know it's kind of an open door policy in the neighborhood where everybody's door is open you can walk into anybody's house um have breakfast lunch or dinner if that's what they're doing you i don't know the sun goes down music comes on people have parties and they invite you and you can go anywhere anyway i guess my point is you will never be bored there and you will always have family somewhere, even if they're not your, you know, blood family. Um, so I, I think that that really was kind of the the aha moment for me, like thinking about why would they want to leave, even if they know it's a toxic place, given that they don't have one anywhere else to go, really, unless it's going to be a very dire place with no community. So they'd rather stay and kind of live out this toxicity knowingly, but at least they have all the other things that bring joy to their life, given their, you know, marginalized and racialized existence there.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that's really well put. There is a way in which whatever we do right tends to be selective in highlighting certain realities of uh, the experience of the everyday in our field sites. And that's very thoughtfully put. Uh, You did mention that you had to cut short your fieldwork and uh, you had to leave. So, if you don't mind sharing that with us, what happened and how did it affect your project? And how did you I guess think of the adjustments you had to make with the with this hasty exit that you had to that you had to, I guess, do?
0: Yeah, so I guess it's similar to what's going on now with COVID and like what happened with Alex, where he's in the field but can't really do field work. And what happened was that um I was in the field in 2018 and in the earlier part of the year. So I was supposed to finish my, I was on a, a grant, um, or a fellowship. So my fellowship ended in July or early August, I believe. So anyway, in April, there was some, there were some issues in the, the Colombian Ecuadorian border and, the so the acuerdo uh, this is super complicated the political stuff that was going on but the acuerdo de paz had just been signed in Colombia and so this really kind of like stirred things very heavily in the Ecuadorian Colombian border region and one uh, ex guerrillero group. Made its way into Ecuador and started, I guess, doing what they did before in Colombia, but now in Ecuador. And this was this, this all has to do with like Colombian um, guerrilla politics. But because that happened, they crossed into Esmeraldas, and what the first attack that they did, which is a very common um, guerrillero. Colombian guerrillero attack is a car bomb in the city of San Lorenzo, which is approximately three hours north of Esmeraldas. And right, well, I was on a Fulbright grant, so of course, Fulbright is super, super cautious about what um, where they let their grantees go because of liability issues. And I immediately heard from them, and they said, you know, we're like monitoring the situation, but it is very likely that you that um, Esmeraldas is pretty much off our map. Like we cannot grant anybody permission to do work in person in Esmeraldas because it has now become I don't know I think they have a scale of safety it's like one through four or something and I think four is like the mo- the most unsafe so they moved it from a two to a four and that just means that everybody every state department employee of which I was included in that group I suppose had to leave the the area and i'm trying to remember if it was that oh yeah another very unfortunate thing i think there were some journalists, Ecuadorian journalists from Quito who were covering the conflict on the border and they were kidnapped and later assassinated in Colombia, right off of the Colombian Ecuadorian border. And so right when that happened, when that assassination happened, um, that's when we all got pulled. Just immediately were told that we have like an hour to get on a bus and leave. Uh, Esmeraldas and go to Quito. So how did I, anyway, that, that happened. I had to leave. I was very confused. I went to Quito and I met with the commission, the Fulbright commission. And I told him, I guess at that point I was about uh, six, six or seven months into, and what would have been an 11 month grant period. And I had already done a at least four summers of field work in Esmeraldas. So I had a lot of data collection. I think at that point I was kind of selling it to the commission. Like I need to finish my dissertation work, but it was really more like, I, I want to be here, you know, like I kind of tried really hard to become part of this, community in a way as best I could as an outsider. And I have an apartment there and I have furniture and friends and I, I play soccer. And so I was in various teams while in Esmeraldas because Esmeraldas is a huge, huge soccer playing region. So, you know, I, I even remember I had um, one of my teams had a champion or a, yeah, a championship coming up against one of the other provinces. And I told the commission, you know, like, I have a a, a game. I have a match this weekend. I, I can't leave. And they kind of laughed at me and said, this is a lot larger than your match. You know, like, it's not happening. You're staying here. So I considered canceling my, my grant my fellowship and just saying, all right, well, I'm canceling this and I am no longer an employee of the state. Thus, I can still go to Esmeraldas on my own as like a private person, right? Um, I was advised against that. Again, my advisor kind of laughed at me and said, you cannot do that. Don't do that. And then the other thing is that they were offering me, you know, it was a very nice apartment in Quito and pretty much told me to just stay there for the rest of the grand period if I wanted to. And Do my field work from abroad or from Quito, which is impossible to do as ethnographers, we know, right? But my advisor ended up saying, you know, he suggested that I just take this as kind of a break and stay in my very nice apartment and write a paper and, you know, get started on actually writing my dissertation. So I did do that, not for the rest of the grant period, I ended up cutting it short at least three months, I believed. So I ended up staying two months in Quito. And it was great. Um, it worked out, I, I wrote, it was a beautiful place to be, I really appreciated the city, eventually got over having to leave Esmeraldas, and then I did come back the, the year after that, so in 2019, I spent another month or so there.
2: Oh, wow, yeah, thanks for that, It's it sound, sounded both stressful, but also an opportunity in a way, and I think that's just how it goes sometimes, but uh, yeah. It yeah, it sounds like a very, yeah you know, very disruptive sort of an incident overall, um, yeah.
3: Uh, Maricarmen, I there are there are a couple of things I wanted to follow up on that, um, that I thought were really interesting and, and speak a little bit to my experience here. But sort of the the contrast between uh, what is a threat of violence, um, a community that, that we think of that is very contaminated, uh, the reputation that you spoke to earlier that this is like a good place to to get robbed, um, those sort of stereotypes, but then. You know, what you said that I thought was really, uh, really beautiful about the, the joy that was there and the community that you felt. Um, so I was, yeah, I wanted you to talk just a little bit more about, uh, you know, what it was like to be in the field, be there working. You know, we think of people as informants or research subjects or um you know all, all these words that we use that are that are accurate in a way, but it sounds like you know these people were also uh, teammates to you um, and friends. Uh, so I was just wondering if you could speak to to that sort of your day to day in the community, um, the relationships you built, and sort of what relationship that had to your to your field work.
0: Yeah. Uh... So I'm trying to think about how to not sound like I'm romanticizing this thing. Like I am very aware. I I write about it. I am a Mexican woman, a Mestiza Brown Mexican woman, um, entering this space that is very black and very different. Of course, there's all of these differences. So anyway, to claim to actually, you know, have become part of, the community or a group of friends there or whatever might be a little bit too romantic. Um, but I, I did have some very, very strong connections, I would say. And I think one of the reasons why that happened, to be completely honest with you, is that when I first arrived, I realized that this place was so extremely foreign to me in every single way possible. I mean, the only thing that we shared, I suppose, was um, a language. And even that was radically different. Like the Spanish they speak was so difficult for me at the beginning because I couldn't really understand. It's a very almost like Caribeño Spanish, although they're on the Pacific. So anyway. Um, And so one of the reasons oh, that this happened is that I realized early on that life is pretty hard in this place. I mean, for example, water isn't available every day. It only, like piped water only comes um, a few times a week for a few hours at a time, which means that, and and it's really hot, it's really humid, there's no AC, uh, roads aren't paved. So all of these difficulties of living that you can imagine. So what what I kind of told myself was that I either, decided to not do this and go home and find a place where I'm much more comfortable or I just went all in. You know, I just mm-hmm. did not want to complain about, you know, it's so hot or I wish I was home or whatever and just really take it for what it is and try to learn as much and really just understand the community um for what they're doing and try to create as many connections as possible because on a very personal and almost um selfish note I suppose, that was was what was going to make it livable for me. And that first, it was kind of a survival strategy. I just didn't want to be alone, and I wanted to not be miserable for the mm-hmm. first three weeks that I was there, and I couldn't find my way around. And that kind of just led me into creating these connections and friendships with people. Like, for example, the main one, I would say, uh, the woman that I lived with on and off for years at this point, we just became really close. And, you know, we we still talk all the time she you know i kind of keeps me up to date on what's going on with the family and the neighborhood gossip and stuff like that and she's also of course an organizer as i mentioned so i kind of became a tool to her and i told her this i i said you know there's all of these things that you need help with and just tell me what to do i have a computer so she needed to fill out all of these formularios for like bureaucracies of the state, right, to ask Mm -hmm. for um, services or whatever. She didn't have a computer, she didn't have internet. So we got Wi-Fi in her house, and then I have a computer. So I ended up just being her secretary of sorts. And she has so many projects going on at any given time, that I just became her archive of keeping things organized and doing her um, like administrative processes with the state for her and all of these things. And so I think that kind of really brought us together because we were working together every day, but it also gave her something. I mean, like it gave her something of, of use. It just made everything that she was doing that much faster because she didn't have to go to the cyber cafe that they call them and this right. sort of thing. Um, yeah. So I think that that was the way that, that um, developed. Although, like I said, it was, it was
2: definitely planned,
0: but it also kind of came about naturally in a way.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I feel like maybe the organizational skills are something that uh, we as graduate students uh, or field workers can certainly offer, you know, and
3: um, so... Are, are we supposed to have those?
2: I, I certainly don't have them, Alex, as you know, but <laughs> I hear a lot of people do have them and that's um, that's a, that's an enviable skill to have. Um, you know, on, on, a, on a slightly different note, um I did notice that your sociological perspectives piece uses photographs very nicely. And um, I was curious to know why you started using photography as part of ethnography and what it has added to your research. And if you are thinking about visual sociology and all all that it offers, perhaps?
0: Yeah. Um, so, okay. One, this also kind of came about as part of the project and I didn't completely plan it. And then when it was already happening, I thought, Oh my God, this is amazing. And I don't want to throw shade on our fellow ethnographers or, you know, me before working with Donna, which is what I'll tell you now. Um, but sometimes, Oh, for the exception of Alex, because I've seen your pictures, they're really beautiful, Alex. And yeah. we, we, Thank you. I think
3: it's very kind of
0: you. Here. With ethnography, a lot of the time, not all ethnography, right? Like some are digital ethnographies, but a right. lot of traditional ethnography that we do is really so conducive to um, just visually documenting the place. And it makes the work so much more compelling when we do that. And anyway, what I was going to say is that ethnographers hardly ever do that. You know, sometimes there are all of these incredible possibilities of just like, showing people what your field place look like, and it doesn't happen. So anyway, I didn't do it before. And then when I first went to Esmeraldas, this group of researchers included a photojournalist, a professor of photojournalism at UT, Donna de Chessere is her name. And she came to the field with me for about two weeks. I think I was there for a little bit over two months and she joined me for about two weeks. And for those two weeks, we worked really hard. I mean, she was working on a project of her own documenting toxicity in Latin America, but I kind of Mm -hmm. went everywhere in the city with her carrying so much. So I learned how difficult it is to do this work too. I mean, her heavy, very heavy equipment and also going into places that are not at all safe, like the neighborhood and taking out these like huge cameras, right. Mm -hmm. Um, Things that were, I don't know, I thought were a little bit unsafe, but uh, it, ended up being really worth it. So all of the photographs that we got from that, a lot of them were taken by Donna. But then subsequently, when I returned without her, that's when I already knew the very important you know, value of documenting visually. And so by then I had gotten my own camera and I you know, took some very, very introductory courses to how to use it <laughs> well. Um, and then I tried to continue doing it on my own. Um, of course, like, you know, the, the photographs I took on my own will never be like the ones Donna took. But uh, unfortunately, I can't take Donna everywhere I go, although I do <laughs> that, but I don't think <laughs> I can. So now I'm trying to develop these skills on my
2: own. Yeah, I mean they're they're really great, and I keep joking with Alex that we should have an entire section called "Seeing Like an Ethnographer," but it's a tad too cheesy, perhaps. <laughs> um,
3: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I just wanted to follow up because I, you know, I've seen you present your research using photos, and I, I think it's it's really powerful, and it's something that I've um, that I've started doing um, more recently as well. Kind of like what, what you said, you get to a moment where where you sort of see that. Um, so how does how does taking photos sort of fit in within being an ethnographer in, like, practical terms? I mean, you had a camera. Are you taking it everywhere with you? Um, I found, for example, that it's actually an interesting way to meet people is just asking if you can take their photo. Uh, what, is, what does that look like?
0: Oh Well, you know, I think that... Um <laughs> I'm I don't share that experience uh Alex and I think it's really only because I am not a photographer I really am not like I always forget to bring it I forget to charge it I forget the memory card so I'm not very good at the thing um and when I do I, I pretty much the way that I've handled it precisely because I'm not a photographer and I'm not used to carrying it around with me now of course another important note um that we briefly talked about is safety. So the neighborhood is very poor and I wouldn't say it's especially violent so like violent crime is not very common but petty crime is so like you said if um, to get robbed is probably going to happen in that area within the realm of the south of the city right in in that area so Mm -hmm. I usually went around the neighborhood because I knew a lot of the neighborhood leaders and then later I worked in in the local public elementary so I got to know all the kids and their moms and so I was like a kind of a known figure to be walking around. And I never felt unsafe. I don't think people would really think of Robbing me or whatever for the most part because they knew that I was doing work there with the kids, etc. But I did not have anything in my hands. I did not bring a cell phone. I brought a recorder, but you know, recorders are small and they're also not worth a lot. Um, So, but besides that, I had a notebook and a pen because a backpack will immediately draw attention. So, walking around with a camera was not a thing I wanted to do. So, to answer your question more directly, practicality, what I ended up doing is that I designated one day out of the week in which Mm -hmm. I only took photographs. I basically went around all day visiting people, going into houses, walking the streets, doing all kinds of things and taking photographs. And then that was my photograph day. Granted, I'm sure that on all other six days of the week, there were you know, myriad opportunities to take beautiful photographs and I didn't do it because I didn't have my camera. But yeah, that's basically what I ended up doing, but was pretty much doable for me. And like you said, Alex, I agree. I think that Um, reaction to my work has been so tied to the photographs that I present. And I think that it just really does something else, you know, for you to tell people something and for them to actually see it and see it projected, you know, on a really big screen. And when it's a beautiful photograph with vibrant colors, it really draws people in. So it gives them all kinds of things to talk about and comment and even brings up questions like, Every time I've given um, my talk, my dissertation or my job talk, I suppose, I always get at least two or three questions directly about the photograph. So they're kind of a really good conversation starter of sorts.
2: That sounds um, really interesting. And I was just thinking about Alex's question about what uh, the camera does to like social interactions in the field. And I feel like because I was working with state officials, they were so annoyed if I would take my phone out or my camera out. Like they were like very against the idea of, um, much photographic documentation, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I guess it like totally depends on the context and what one is studying, of course. Uh, but I, I do think that this is a fantastic note. Uh, on which to end this absolutely vibrant and really provocative discussion that we've had with you, Marie Carmen. Thank you so much for taking time out. I know that it's a it's a weirdly busy time when we at once have not much to do and at the same time have a lot to do. So I really appreciate it. Thanks for coming on this call.
3: Yeah, thank yeah absolutely.
0: Thank you so much for having me. Oh, go ahead, Alex.
3: No, I was just going to say thank you. This this has been fascinating, and uh, you know, I've I've heard you talk about. Your research a little bit for for a few years now, but it, it was just really interesting to hear some of the the nuts and bolts. Um and and yeah, some of the amazing experiences that you've had. So we really appreciate you taking the time to to come talk with us.
0: Yeah, thank you both so much. It was great to meet you, Sneha, and great to talk to you, Alex. Thank
2: you for having yeah. me. Um well take care and stay safe. Thank you. You too.
1: Swimsuit. Check. Sunscreen. Check. Phone charger. Check.